Welcome to Breitbart News Daily. Welcome back to Breitbart News Daily. We're all back. We're all ready to go. Are you ready to go yet? At 5 a.m. when the show started this morning, my time, Central Time, uh, maybe we weren't as ready to go as we should. You know what I mean? But now I'm up. Now I'm up. We're awake. Everyone's moving. We're all back to work by the time you're listening to this podcast. And we're, we're, we're up and at them now. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. Um, we, let's play for you here our opening segment where we went over just as a good foundational review. You know what I mean? You come back. It's good to do, uh, go over the basics here. A little foundational review uh, inspired by Russell Kirk of 12 Principles of a Civil and Just Government. And we had some wonderful phone calls out of that. And then in the 7 o'clock hour, and you have to be a subscriber to hear this, we did uh, our obligatory New Year's resolution segment. And then uh, after this, we'll play our interview with Emma Jo Morris, which is obviously always awesome. Enjoy our opening segment. morning happy new year welcome back to the grind i'm so curious what everyone's pep talk was to themselves this morning surely you had some pep talks throughout the last few days like oh it's almost over we gotta go back to work but the pep talk this morning while in bed maybe you're having it right now maybe this is your pep talk that's a lot of pressure get up you gotta go to work what were you telling yourself this morning? I would love to be in everyone's head this morning. Just for, not for long. Not for long. Just like 20 seconds. I want to hear everyone's pep talk to themselves for 20 seconds while they're laying in bed like, oh, oh, it's early. Darn it. I don't know. What'd you say to get out of bed? How'd you get out of bed today? I'm grateful you did. If you did not have any time off this last week or so. Thank you for working. Your job must be essential. And no one gave you any credit for working. But if you're suiting up and going to work on Christmas, you're doing something that's keeping the country moving in a very important way. So thank you for that. We're reading the Little House on the Prairie books with the kids before bed. And the kids like just could not understand that Laura has to milk the cows twice a day, every day. They're like, what do you mean? Like, it's like, yeah, you don't get Christmas week off from milking the cows. So thank you for working. And if you did have some time off, I hope you had a chance to enjoy it and you feel refreshed and rejuvenated and ready for the new year, new, year, new you. No, but I hope you had some moments of, uh, of joy this week. The best day of our week, there's no question. We went... Like two days ago, two or three days ago, we went. See, it's such a weird week. If you did have last week off, it's such a weird week. Because it's definitely the one week of the year where you don't really know what day it is. Like, ah, I think it's Wednesday. No, 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 sir. It's two. You don't know. So it's a couple of days ago, and we went for a 90 minute hike. It's pretty cold here. It's 38. I know it's not. You're like, if you're in you know, Minnesota, you're like, that's shorts weather. It's okay. Well, for the kids who grew up in San Diego, 38 is pretty cold. So the kids got bundled up. I went around a 90-minute hike. The kids crushed it. 
and uh, pretty steep, like pretty good, pretty good hike. Got home, had a heaping pile of hot spaghetti and meatballs. We call them meat bobs. That's what the kids called it when they were little. So big, big plate of spaghetti and meat bobs. We got a fire going, and everyone grabbed a book on the couch, and everyone fell asleep and took a nap. It was absolutely glorious. I, it was, it was, my wife took a picture of us all napping and it will be a nap we'll never forget. It was, it was in the Hall of Fame of naps. I will look at that picture. I'll be 100 years old. I'll look at that picture and I'll be, I remember that nap. I absolutely remember that nap. It's a great nap. Kids all, we're all like in like one couch. Brings me great joy right now thinking about it. Actually, kind of makes me want to take another nap. No, actually, doesn't want to make me want to take that because I I'll, I will never be able to simulate that nap again. That was a once in a lifetime nap, with the hike and the spaghetti and the fire and the cold and the no work. <laughs> Everything came together. That'll never come together ever again. All star, all time, great nap. And we played uh, we played Monopoly for the first time. The kids got their first tape of Monopoly, uh, taste of Monopoly. It was six hours, and no one threw the board game across the room. That was a huge win. I don't think anyone cried, so that's great. Very good. Win. The kids wanted to play again the next day. We're like, no, we can't play. This is like a, this is like a twice a year game, kids. It's not like Candyland. So that was our that was our week. But uh, routine is nice. Getting up early is nice. Laying in bed's not. It's not that's all it's cracked up to be. You know what I mean? You kind of wake up and you roll around for a while and you're like, ah, my back kind of hurts now. That's what I told myself this morning. It's like, get up now and your back won't hurt. Ah, I'm getting old. But there's a real thing. The post-Christmas blues are a real thing. So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, Christmas is this long buildup, all this excitement. And then just boom, it's gone. Just, it's like, it's not even the day. It's not even Christmas day goes. It's Christmas morning. It's, just, boom, it's over. And then it's Christmas afternoon, and you're like, oh, well, okay, well, I guess we're 364 and a half days away from that again. So you're never further away from the joy of Christmas morning than on Christmas afternoon. And that is such a negative way of looking at Geez, that's dark. Even though Christmas morning was just a few hours in the past, we're now, I don't know how many hours a year is, 10,000 hours away from doing that again. And it's just like all that hustling. There's so much hustling around. I don't, I won't miss the hustle. Routine doesn't have as much. It's a different hustle, I guess. I don't know. So like that's a reason for post-Christmas blues. Also, maybe your day was full of unmet expectations. Things don't go perfectly as planned because like, of course, they can't ever. And it's human nature to focus on the things that don't meet your expectations as opposed to the 20 things that did meet your expectations. It's one of these weird things about humans. Like if you made a dinner with six items, you're only going to focus on the side dish that you overcooked. The other five things that were perfect and delicious, you experience no joy over. You only have disappointment in the one thing that didn't go well. That's just how humans are. It's called loss aversion. We feel the pain of loss more than the pleasure of gain. Isn't that weird? So if you win $100 at the casino, you feel a certain amount of happiness for that. Like, oh, cool, got 100 bucks. 
if you lose $100 at the casino, you feel way more unhappiness. Oh, I can't believe I lost $100. The pain of losing money is stronger than the happiness of making money. Weird thing, right? And it's, it's true with the holidays too, like the, like the regrets or the things that didn't go well or the, the this, whatever. The things eating at you more than all the other things that went really well. And there's nothing I can say to change that. It's just to acknowledge that that's, uh, that stinks. So just to refocus best we can on on the good things. That's hard. Um, coming up in the next hour, we'll do our obligatory New Year's resolutions segment. We can't not. Oh, and I got a great quote. Actually, I'll share this quote now. This is good. But we'll share it more in greater detail coming up in the uh, the next hour. But we got to talk about New Year's resolutions. And I... Uh, I, I uh, Sometimes fall into the cynical trap of ah, bah humbug. <laughs> I'm all about Christmas, but bah humbug to the new year. Bah humbug to New Year's resolutions. That's stupid stuff. I don't keep them anyway. Who cares? Bah. Uh, you should make a resolution. My wife is a big holiday person. So she, like all week, she was like, what are, you, what are your resolutions? What are your resolutions? I was like, I don't have any resolutions. Oh, what are you? Oh, come on. You got to have a resolution. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have a resolution. What do you want? I have resolutions every day. That was like my like high and mighty Every day I make resolutions. <laughs> uh, so I finally came around to it. I was like, ah, sorry, wife. It's kind of a curmudgeon. I got some resolutions. Uh, but check out this. This is Samuel Johnson in 1764, one of the smartest men ever. He wrote this in his journal. I don't know if they called it a diary back then. When I look back upon resolutions of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been made and broken. So for hundreds of years, people have, people have made resolutions and broken uh, they've been uh, made and broken either by negligence, forgetfulness, vicious idleness, casual interruption, or morbid infirmity. So whether I have even good excuses. When I find that so much of my life has stolen unprofitably away, and that I can describe by retrospection scarcely a few single days properly and vigorously employed. He's <laughs> like, I look back on the year... There's like a few days that things went well. I look back a couple. There are a couple days when I did what I wanted to do, when I kept my resolutions. A few, a few single days, like four. There are four, four days when I did what I was supposed to. Why do I yet try to resolve again? He asked himself. I try because reformation is necessary, and despair is criminal. I try in humble hope of the help of God. Reformation is necessary. It's good to always be trying to get better. It's necessary. And despair is criminal. Despair means down from hope. Always have hope that you can do better and things can get better. To despair is criminal. So make some resolutions. It's good. So we'll talk more about that coming up in the uh, in the next hour. And then at 8 o'clock, as promised, uh, we'll commence our new journey on work ethic. If you remember before we went to uh, break or into Christmas, uh, we we tabled some work at the conversation, so we'll do a little bit of that coming up at 8 o'clock as well. That is the game plan of the show. Uh, Emma Joe is going to be here at 8 o'clock. Uh, catch us up on on the politics of the uh, of the last week or so. So let's do uh, t- Dan Gaynor coming up at 7 o'clock. So to ease us back into politics, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll get back to politics hardcore. Don't you worry. This, there'll be plenty of politics this year. That I can assure you. Uh to ease us back into it. 
I came across this guy who is in the Oregon State House of Representatives, Ed Deal, D-I-E-H-L. Maybe we can talk to him one day. And I don't even know how I came across this, but he has a list of the 12 principles of a civil and just society. And I thought this was worth laying out here together, just kind of uh, start the new year, get us all on the same page of, of what's going to be a crazy and possibly violent election year. I don't know. Should I say that? Probably will, though. Maybe I shouldn't say it out loud. Am I manifesting it? All right, so 12 points, 12 principles of a civil and just society. That's what we, we want. So let's, uh, let's just, like, you know, start with the basics here. Number one, our inherent self-evident rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness come from our creator. Government exists to protect and defend these rights. Fundamental, fundamental truth right there that every politician needs to be reminded of. Number two, there is an enduring moral order or harmony to the universe. That order is made for man and man is made for it. Human nature is a constant and moral truths are permanent. Human nature is a constant, moral truths are permanent. That's so counter to the thinking of the day when there's no such thing as truth and all this. Aristotle, he wrote a, a couple pages on the differences between young and old men. What are the differences, differences between young men and old men? And could have been written yesterday. Could have wrote it, could have wrote it this weekend, published it on Breitbart.com, and no one would have known the difference. And he was alive in, he wrote that in like 400 BC. <laughs> so 2,500 years ago, Aristotle is describing young and old men to a T because human nature never changes. Number three, there is dignity in each individual human being. Human life is sacred and the dignity of the human being is the foundation of a moral vision for our communities. And he talk about dignity and human life and sacred and communities is where we need to be. Number four, true vision. Uh, this, this, uh, true vision means doing what we ought to do, not whatever our whims desire. True freedom leads to true happiness. The pursuit of happiness, true happiness. Pure individuality, following your most base desires, is a false freedom, which leads to an erosion of family and community. And ultimately, to a rise in the power of the state to fill the void. That was my biggest realization of the last six months or so here on this show together. That true freedom means doing what we ought to do, not whatever our whims desire. How about just getting out of bed? Let's start on that one. Seriously, like what, what are your whims desire? <laughs> your whims desire for you to stay in bed. My whim this morning said it's kind of chilly out from under these covers. These cozy earth sheets are real nice. I don't want to get out of them. Like I said, I didn't really like sleeping in that much. There were a couple days where we were able to sleep in until 6.30. I didn't like it. Felt behind all day. Kind of groggy. So my back hurt. 
but it doesn't matter. Your base desire still wants you to stay in bed. And that's in the Bible too. One of my favorite scriptures, Proverbs 24, 14, 26, 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. Isn't that great? So there's another example. That proverb, Proverbs were written in 1,000 BC. So 3,000 years ago, they were talking about lazy people staying in their bed and hinging, like rolling back and forth instead of getting up <laughs> and going to work. Human nature hasn't changed at all. But my base desire, our, all of our base desires is to stay in bed. But we know that's not what we ought to do. And that's what the last 48 hours of my life were negotiating with myself about what I ought to do. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I should do. And the person who does what they ought to do, the person who gets out of bed and reads a book and does a workout and has a nice morning routine and listens to Breitbart News Daily, that person will clearly be happier. And that is true freedom. And the, we have major problem in our country that most people in our country just do what feels good in the moment. And then bad things happen. And back in the, in the day, we used to say, okay, well, tough. <laughs> That's your own fault. You stayed in bed all day. You didn't go to work. What do you want me to say? You're poor now because you didn't go to work. Back in the day, we said that's what we used to say with tough noogies. Or maybe the compassionate thing back in the day would have been, um, listen, I'll bail you out this time if you learned your lesson. But now we, we've built an entire society around people who routinely, for their entire lives, make bad decisions. To the point where we now incentivize making bad decisions. And the people who make good decisions are back here like a bunch of chumps. And we're not living in a true state of freedom because we built a society around the people who do what feels good as opposed to doing what they ought to do. That was the biggest realization for me in the last six months. I look forward to uh, more realizations. That was also one reason why I said we should probably get back to work because you you're not growing on vacation. <laughs> that, that, that was part of my pep talk. It's like, oh, we got we to gotta get back to work because it's like, I don't know. You got to, <laughs> like, I didn't learn anything this last week, I guess. I don't know. All right, here's number five from this guy. What are these? These are 12 principles of a civil and just society. Number five, we have a moral obligation to help those who are unable to help themselves. And those with the ability to do so have a moral obligation to contribute to society, to contribute more than they consume. If there are people who choose not to help themselves, they are taking away resources from those who are truly unable to help themselves. If people choose not to help themselves and demand help from the rest of us, they are taking away resources from those who are unable to help themselves. And that is shameful. Unwilling versus unable is a world of difference. And we should have more contempt for the unwilling for a lot of reasons, but if nothing else, because it hurts the unable. And I would like the unwilling to help themselves to just look, look the unable in the eyes and say, I deserve it more. I deserve this help more. I deserve this welfare more. I deserve this help more than you do. You couldn't do it. You couldn't look someone in the eyes and do that. Number six, we stand on the shoulders of giants. 
We are no smarter than those that preceded us. We simply have the luxury of living in a society they built and the opportunity to build on it ourselves. We must respect and understand that we are the beneficiaries of their trials, successes, and failures. That just needs to be shared with every college kid who thinks they're so much smarter than our slave-owning ancestors. Number seven, societal change must be implemented thoughtfully and carefully with a full respect for why things are the way they are and an understanding of both the intended and unintended long-term consequences of any change. This is the nature of a conservative. A conservative is to conserve. So social change must be implemented thoughtfully and carefully. Progressives think all change is good by definition. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be done thoughtfully or carefully. Just change. And that's fine. That's progress. But it was Russell Kirk who said men cannot improve a society by setting fire to it. They must seek out its old virtues and bring them back into the light. There's thoughtfulness. There's carefulness implied there. Progressives just want to burn it off, <laughs> light it all on fire and call that improvement. See, uh, we don't have to do a whole thing here, but progressives believe in evolution in all forms. First and the most ridiculous that we all come from some bacteria somewhere, somehow that came from nothing. No one has explained that, but somehow there's a bacteria and then that turned into like a fish and the fish turned into a frog and the frog turned into a monkey and then it turned into a human. And if you just give it a little bit more time, then we'll be smarter and we'll be even better. And utopia is right around the corner. We just need like a few, I don't know, millions of more years and we'll just keep progressing to smarter and smarter. So in the progressive mind, all progress is by definition good. And to the conservative, our job is to preserve order. Another Russell Kirk quote. He said, part of being a conservative is recognizing that change may not be salutary reform. Like it may not be good reform. Hasty innovation may be a devouring conflagration fire rather than a torch of progress. Oh, we're improving. We're improving. We're progressing. We're progressing. It's like, oh, no, that's a giant fire that's going to destroy everything. And they're like, no, it's the torch of progress. We're like, no, you're just going to burn everything to the ground. And he said, in the march of utopia, in the march towards utopia, the ideologue is merciless. Watch out for those folks. Number eight, equality of opportunity is the goal, not equality of outcome. A diverse society is a healthy society that is advancing. Attempts to level outcomes will lead to social stagnation or tyranny. Number nine, we are imperfect beings. We can achieve an ordered, just, and free society, but it will not be perfect. Evil and suffering will always exist. Attempts to form a utopian society will only result in more evil and more suffering and evil. Number 10, freedom and private property are inseparable. Private property leads to a more stable and productive society, one where freedom can flourish. Number 11, voluntary community is the goal, not involuntary collectivism. In a genuine community, divisions are made locally and voluntarily. Centralized decision-making weakens communities and is hostile to freedom and human dignity. Voluntary communities are the foundation of a flourishing society. Oh, I lament the breakdown of communities. The days when D.C. was so far away, you didn't even care 
You didn't know. He didn't care what was going on. I remember Rick Perry was running for president. I forget when. And that was his whole thing is I want to make Washington, D.C. inconsequential to your lives. I don't want you to think about it. I don't want it to have anything to do with you. I want it to be totally powerless and worthless over everything that you do. And we, we didn't. But now we're just it's like all that matters. It just grows and grows and gets more powerful. I so badly want D.C. to be irrelevant in my life. What a win that would be. And number 12, restraints must be placed on power and human passions. Concentrated power leads to tyranny. Unchecked human passions lead to anarchy, which also ultimately leads to tyranny. That's a pretty, uh, pretty good list. I'll put it on the Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter, so you can give that guy a shout. He's a, he's a rep in the Oregon House of Representatives. So that's, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, a couple quotes here we'll end with. Yuval Levin. Levin? Yuval Levin? from National Affairs. He says, to my mind, conservatism is gratitude. Conservatives tend to begin from gratitude for what is good and what works in our society and then strive to build on it. While liberals tend to begin from outrage at what is bad and broken and seek to uproot it. It's probably about right. And I'll throw in one more Russell Kirk. He said, if you want to have order in the commonwealth, you first have to have order in the individual soul. That goes back to New Year's resolutions. That's why it's good to make them. You got to get order in your soul because before you can have that, that's like the prereq before having, that's a very Jordan Peterson point too. Right? Clean your own room is this whole thing. You can't go on reordering all of society with your global warming reforms until you clean your own room. Tucker Carlson makes this point a lot too. He's like, if you, he's like, progressives tend to talk about people as like, like this like huge generic group of a thing like oh we help people he's like yeah but you treat the people in your life horribly like the, you treat the individual individual people in your life terribly so don't go lecturing me about how you help people if the people in your life your family coworkers, friends hate you or, <laughs> or whatever or like or i think he hit a good line he said something like you can't you can't be a politician and tell me that you care about people when your housekeeper needs a new car and you don't help her out that was his example right because there's there's a person who needs help and you're not willing to help them but you say you help people like no enough of that so first you got to start with your individual soul that's what russell kirk says your individual soul and then you you go from there the 20th century conservative is concerned, first of all, with the regeneration of the spirit and character, with the perennial problem of the inner order of the soul, the restoration of the ethical understanding and the religious sanction upon which any life worth living is founded. That is conservatism at its highest. The regeneration of the spirit and character and the inner order of the soul. That's the individual person. It has to be our main focus. I mean, it's Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk, I do have to do a thing on Russell. Russell Kirk's like, um, I like one of the like, top conservatives of the last hundred years. Right? He's like, like one of the founders, leaders of the conservative, like the intellectual conservative movement. He's like, oh no, it's all about the individual person. It's all about the soul. That's conservatism at its highest. You move from there. So welcome back to it. It's going to be quite a year. I'm thrilled. I can't wait. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be a lot of fun. <clears throat> We're going to be happy warriors throughout. And there's no place I'd rather be for it. 
That is 100% absolutely true. There's no place better for this conversation than uh, with Breitbart and all the, the people and connections at Breitbart and SiriusXM. Uh, this is going to be an awesome year. This is the place to be for this year and, uh, and beyond. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Emma Joe Morris, that's the only person I wanted to talk to when we get back into the into the into the swing of things here. And I knew she would set us right. Emma Joe, what was the pep talk you gave yourself this morning lying in bed to start this new year? Get up and Adam, get back to work. Hey, uh, first of all, good morning. Thank you for having me on. I feel like I'm honored to be on this show. It's like we're reminding people why they work and think about things and it's great. It's that's like that's the attitude I wanted. That's what I was hoping for something like that. That, that. that that was even enough of a pep talk for me. Um, did you, did you have a really? week off? Because my pep talk was I could give you radio silence for, for 30 seconds to give you the gist of it, to give you the flavor. Give me a little flavor. <laughs> is that, is that, is yeah, you're, I, was, you're... I was saying I would have to give you radio silence to give you the flavor <laughs> of my pep talk to myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just uh, deep breathing. Like, okay, get up, get up, get up. Did you have a week off at all or no? Just me sipping coffee. <laughs> did you take some time off or no? Yes, I did. Yes, uh, your producers are, are aware of that because they asked me to come on and I had to unfortunately put my foot down, which I actually hate doing, but I took some time off between Christmas and New Year's. I felt like I, I hadn't done that in, in two years, so... Oh. It was time for some R and R and me time. I went to Canada, visited my parents, visited some family. It was lovely. Very um, good. Yeah, lovely is what we're looking yeah, for. Yeah, no regrets. Um, but now we're back at it. So what? Yeah, and I'm excited for it actually. After that vacation, like I don't know if anybody else gets this, but after I take a vacation, I feel, I feel it takes about 48 hours for me to feel useless and like my life has no point if I'm yes. not working. Yes, that's right. So I'm super excited <laughs> to be back. Yes, good, good, good. So what madness do we have to look forward to this year, Emma Jo? Oh, yeah. I mean, just this month, like, just this month, I, I hope everyone rested because there's a lot going on. Um, first of all, like, 2024 is launching full force, um, the election, obviously. Uh, we have the Iowa caucuses coming up in less than two weeks. We have the New Hampshire primary, too, coming up. A couple of days after that, then in Congress, it's it's all kind of on a collision course right now because we have the government shutdown threat again. Uh, that's split up into two parts. Uh, one part is uh, mid-January, and then the second one is first couple of days of February, uh, where they have to figure out how to reach an agreement to secure the border, uh, fund our great ally and democracy, uh, Ukraine, and and obviously funding for Israel. Um, so that's all being negotiated right now, kind of in a, in a mad dash. And, uh, and then obviously just funding the government in general, but those two are major sticking points that are tied up together um, with the government funding bill. So... Okay. I want to get uh, everyone kind of has their work cut out for them this month in politics because it's going to be crazy. Yeah, I want to I want to get to each of those, uh, but but bigger picture, 
Because we're, I think, at least I. So I, I, it takes me a while to gear up. Like it takes me a while to gear down. And then I'm like a slow acceleration up again. So I'm still like in the ramp up phase uh, of, of life. We don't so, have time for that, Slater. Come on. I know. That's, what I'm saying. That's why you're here. That's why I need you. Uh, so where's your head at? Where's your head at? Where's your heart at? Where's your energy level at? How are you approaching this season to come? Um, well, okay. Good question. Um, I think that the primaries, I guess, are supposed to be interesting, except they just aren't interesting to me because Trump is 30 points ahead minimum in every single state that, you know, we're, we're dealing with. It's, it's not even like, I mean, people are pretending that there's some race to watch in New Hampshire. I do not buy that. Trump is far and away the, the leading candidate and say what you want about it. You can have feelings about it or whatever. I'm like, we can have a, a session where people call in and vent about it, but it doesn't really matter. Because this guy is, as, as far as reality is concerned, as of right now, the nominee. He is the presumptive nominee. So, I mean, it's an interesting little thing going on, but it's not really something that I don't, I don't think us talking about has any impact on. Yep. However, the border and the funding fight is much more interesting because that is something where there's actually – something to chew on. Um, we have a wide open border. I don't know if anybody is, uh, it's the first time listening to Breitbart News Radio, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we, we are being absolutely invaded. It's, it's so out of control that if you, like when I think about it, honestly, I become enraged. Mm. Uh, the, the, you know, I live in New York. New York City is getting 4,000 migrants, illegals a week. Um, they're totally swamping all of our, all of our resources, totally swamping, you know, we obviously have a big social safety net in this country. It's completely getting decimated by this incredible strain. Um, and nobody seems to be taking it seriously. So, you know, the white house and kind of Congress, although I don't think to be fair, I don't think Republicans want it to be this way. It's just kind of turned out this way, that it's all rolled up into, um, you know, being tied to Ukraine funding and Israel and whatever else. Um, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Uh, I don't understand. And, you know, if anybody knows, you know, me and listens to me on this show and, and reads my tweets and reads my work, they'll know that I personally am a total Zionist. I think that Israel is obviously a huge deal and needs to be, um, you know, like we need to take a side in this. And I totally think that. But the fact that any foreign nation could be equated with our border, um, regardless of how big of an ally it is, and I do think Israel is a genuine ally, is nuts to me. It's nuts. We have a country here, and the priority has to be taking care of this country here. I know that we say this all the time, but it's worth repeating because apparently people still don't get it. Our border is wide open. We don't have a country. We have no sovereignty, let alone the impact that it's taking on all of our resources, on our towns. Um, this is nuts. This is so infuriating. So, uh, yeah, so that's something to watch. Um, and we're going to end up, I think, seeing, unfortunately, some sort of compromise, which 
where is there compromise here? How is this a conversation about compromise? To me, it, it just boggles the mind. Am I wrong with this, this border fight in Congress that this can't be fixed by Congress? It's just it's a will issue. It's a execution of the laws that are already on the books. So really, it's just who's the president. Is that a fair assessment? Well, that would be a start. But I mean, there's funding going toward facilitating all of this. I don't know how they proceed if, if there's money being cut off. And I don't care where you cut it off from. It's about a hostage negotiation at this point. Yeah. Why does it bother you so much? And why does it make, like why it make you... is being held hostage right yeah. now. Why is an invasion? Why, when you use that word, which I didn't use until maybe six months ago. I don't know even what really pivoted it for me or why I was so hesitant at all, I guess. I think, I, I think an invasion to me had to be like, there had to be a general. There had to be a general and, and people in uniform, I think, in my brain. And then I was like, eventually, I said, no, no, no. <laughs> like, this is millions of military-aged men coming across. It's just the same. And now it's even weirder because Democrats want these people to be in our military, which is, like, just totally bonkers. Uh, but why does this make you so angry? Because, first of all, there is a general, and the general is called the Sinaloa Cartel, okay? Mm-hmm. First of all, it's yeah. a crime <laughs> nice. ring that is organizing this operation. And it's not a small crime ring. I mean, these people make ISIS look like, look like school children. These are vicious people, these cartels. And they run the government in Mexico, and they run our border, um, which mm. I can't have. Sorry. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I am not comfortable with that personally. Yeah. Second of all, <laughs> um, why does this bother me so much is because It's a matter of dignity for our country. You can't have no borders. You just, it's a principle. Aside from all of the effects that I just outlined about how, you know, you have to put people who speak zero English in our school system, which is already, I don't know if you've seen the numbers lately, but we're not doing great. Our literacy rate isn't going up, shall we say. Mm. Um, You have to treat these people in our hospitals. You know, you have to give these people jobs. You have to house them somehow. You can't have bodies strewn all around, um, especially not in the Northeast where I live, where it's below zero right now. Um, You have to care for them. And as much as I do sympathize with people who want to come to America to live a better life, hey, I was one. I mean, I'm lucky because I'm a U.S. citizen and I was just living abroad. But I get that. It doesn't mean that everybody has the right to do it because when you open that opportunity up to the entire world, and that is what is going on right now, when you open that opportunity up to the entire world, it takes the opportunity away from everybody because it just floods the zone. We have no ability to negotiate wages. We have no positions available. Uh, that's, That's just basic economics and listen i'm no economics genius you can ask my macro teacher from high school i barely passed but i can get that much that when you have unlimited supply it doesn't work and and i mean that of workers so it doesn't work for them it doesn't work for u.s citizens it doesn't work for new immigrants who are already here it doesn't work for anybody um and we're seeing that because if you walk around any major city, if you walk around my neighborhood, which is way removed from, from the central area of Manhattan, you have people walking around panhandling with Google Translate on their phone asking for money. Mm. It's, this is not sustainable. Um, and aside from the economic issues, you know, probably my primary thing is culture. 
you know, and I don't think you can have this conversation without going there, which is the United States has a very um, unique and, in my opinion, uh, you know, elevated culture, which is something that has been fostered and preserved for, you know, I mean, it's Western culture, I guess. Maybe you could say hundreds of years. Um, and it's, it's very unique. And not every country in the world has that. And so let's say, for argument's sake, we had some sort of super economy that was impervious to, like, the laws of physics. Mm. It doesn't matter because, because our culture matters and assimilation matters and speaking English matters and having the values of Americans matter. And I'm not saying that people who are coming don't necessarily speak English or share our values, but a lot of them don't. And I'm not comfortable with that because I want America to stay America, and America is not just an economy. Mm-hmm. It's not even just land. It's the people who live here and the custodians of that of this of this nation. And uh, that's what dictates what it looks like, how it feels to walk on the street, how it feels to go to school, what it feels like to interact with the people in your neighborhood. Um, and and I think that we do need to protect that culture and that conversation needs to be had. Sometimes it can be hard to have because sometimes it can be hard to define the term. Yes. yes uh, but I think we can probably get our arms around it on a basic level and define it on a basic level. And we need to do that because that needs to be part of this part of this dialogue. Yeah, no, no. I think that's the that is the argument of depth. Uh, the economic things we talk about, but you're always going to have someone who can counteract that or whatever, or come up with their own alternate facts or whatever. Uh, I think when you really get to the heart of it, you end up, you talk about culture, but is that really hard to have? Because most Americans can't define our culture. It's all we know, right? I ask, ask a fish yeah. to find water. They can't. And it is hard to be like when you're in it, it's hard to get perspective to define it. Uh, especially when you have no physic, uh, you have no civics classes anymore, or no civic understanding or civic conversation anymore, which I don't think we really do. Yeah. But we gotta we gotta figure that out because it matters, and that's what dictates the the vibes of your country. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah, so who? But we don't know who we are. So we don't know who we are. So who are we to s- say? oh, these people have a different culture. Well, they're all the same. No one's better. If anything, we're worse. It's like, oh, well, I don't, no, no. How do we, what does family look like? What does marriage look like? Right. What does child rearing look like? How do we treat each other? How do we treat the poor? Uh, like if you have a bunch of Hindus here who believe in karma, okay, well, that's, they have a very different view on how to treat poor people because they think poor people are, it's like part of the cosmic justice that they sinned in a previous life or whatever. So it's like, okay. And like, if you inter, if you help someone who's poor, then you are interfering in, in like the way or what. So it's like, okay, well, that's very different than, than the Judeo-Christian view of how we treat people who are in need. Uh, how do we dress? How do we work? What is time? What is, how do we view wealth? How do we view power? How do we, like these are huge, huge, massive cultural things that we're just like whatever. Bring in people who have totally different views on all these things, and there's no way they'll be assimilated because we don't even know how we view. And we certainly can't like justify why one is better, why our way is better. Heaven forbid. How racist would right. that be? Of course not. That would be very difficult to yeah. do too. <laughs> So then, so then it just turns into race. So then it turns into oh, Emma Joe's racist. Emma Joe doesn't like brown right, people. Which is, I, and I and I so I didn't even go there. 
the thought for one second fleetingly crossed my mind that I did not even go there because I find it so gross and disingenuous and such an obvious miscategorization of what I'm saying and a purposeful miscategorization yeah. of what I'm saying. <laughs> because yeah. obviously no one cares about race. Obviously no one cares. And I hate even going there because that's obviously not what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what... I love this big conversation, but what back to the politics of it. What do the Democrats, excuse me, what do the Republicans in Congress want? Like, what are they fighting for in this next round of border issue? Right. So they want to, they want to obviously, you know, tighten up the ability to claim asylum because you have any rando walking through the door saying, I basically need, econo I'm, I need economic opportunities. And it's not a valid reason to claim asylum. You need to be like in danger imminently in your country. Um, and, and people are just kind of walking in and saying just whatever. And that's it. Um, so I think that's, that is the major focus. Okay. Is so Bright, Breitbart reported. And how we're enforcing them and what we're accepting is a quote unquote asylum claim, which is a joke. Yeah, Breitbart reported that there's a woman who got from Venezuela or somewhere that got a claim hearing. Her asylum hearing is uh, January 22nd. So coming up here, a couple of weeks, 2031. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, I was going to say, when did she come here? Like 1802 to get that date? <laughs> <laughs> 2031. Yeah, yeah so that's no, a joke. 100%. Like, it's like, yeah, you're going to have your hearing. After you've had four children, yeah, yeah, uh, are a landowner, <laughs> yeah, yeah, amazing. Okay, all right. So well, I'm and the truth is, it's cruel to those people because it's like, yeah, okay, my asylum hearing is in ten years. In the meantime, I'm building a life, and like, what if the ruling doesn't fall down in your favor? Like, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. This is not fair to anyone. This is not yeah. fair to anyone. It's really bad. It's, um, it's a travesty, honestly. So we the uh, we don't need to talk about the caucus of the primary, I don't think. We'll save another day for like how the caucuses even work. And all yeah, that I, I kind of killed the buzz on that conversation no, no. at the gate. <laughs> I was we'll like, just, I don't really care, and it doesn't matter, and anything we talk about doesn't change anything. So just skip over that. <laughs> Thank you very Next much. Question, Emma, <laughs> yeah. Next question, Slater. Next question. Let's talk about the end of democracy. So Alyssa... Uh, okay. <laughs> Alyssa, <laughs> Alyssa Trump is the end of it. Of course, Alyssa Fair Griffin. And they keep saying this. I, this is one of Trump's former something. So I don't know. Uh, a second Trump term could mean the end of American democracy. I don't know what they right. mean by that. What does that? What does that mean? They all say it. Um, it's really difficult to parse because it's so dumb. Um, but I think the end of democracy, if we want to talk about the end of democracy, is probably when they rip a candidate off the ballot because he triggers them, as in the case of Colorado and in Vermont. Uh, sorry, in Maine. Maine. So um, I'm confused. <laughs> that's probably like the end of democracy to me. So how does it work, uh, though? What, in, the, in, Colorado, in the normies? I'd be pretty pissed. Yeah, in the normie's brain, though. Why? Let's, so let's be on, move beyond what they're trying to say because it's just a scare tactic, I guess, right? So, but but in, the, in the normie's brain, is that effective? Like, does a normal person walking around, like, are they, does that work? Like, oh, we can't have Trump because it would be the end of democracy? Well, so this is, this is good because, um, <laughs> right, well, so 
that line is something that I think really only resonates with with somebody who is in a state of total decadence. Like, <laughs> if you're worried about the end of democracy as, like, your first thing you're mm. worried about when you're going to vote in 2024, you have no problem. Yes. I think that normies are really worried about the economy. They're worried about inflation. They're worried about maybe World War III uh, brewing on the horizon. Uh, they're ru- they're worried about, like I said, this massive influx of illegals with n- no trace of identity to be found that are popping up all over this country in huge numbers. Uh, there's a lot of things to think about when you're going to the polls in 2024 and democracy or whatever, whatever that means, like this philosophical concept mm. that you might like, you know, discuss over a glass of uh, Sauvignon is not it. And I don't know who these people think they're talking to. Maybe yes. their their colleagues at, at ABC or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but people with yeah. real problems, like I don't think, are spending the time to try to get to the nut of what this kind of <laughs> deep and nebulous concept might mean and how Trump is. Like, what? This is nonsense. People can't afford groceries. Go away. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So then this New York Times poll, pollster, uh, is telling everyone, hey, no, no. A lot of people think that Trump is the return to normalcy candidate. So we have quite a disconnect oh. here where, where one, one group of people on the, like all the media is saying he's a unprecedented fascist. And most American people think he's the return to normalcy. <laughs> well, those are very different things. Right. Like that horrible non-democratic non-democratic fascism that we saw in like 2019 when we were tightening up the border when we were tightening up our trade deals and we were tightening up the economy you know that guy was going and trying to trying to massage area different areas of the economy on a daily and weekly basis he was keeping up like that i mean come on of course, it's a return to normalcy. It's a return to the pre-COVID economy where things weren't totally out of whack and things totally didn't make sense when you didn't have weird, like, wacky numbers coming out that had zero correspondence with lived experience and reality, which yeah. is like what you have now, where it's like the graphs and data show one thing, but, you know, it's actually that people are holding two jobs because they can't afford their life. It's all... It's all so clown world and funhouse mirror right now in terms of the way people are feeling versus what the data is bearing down and what the numbers show. It's all very, it all feels very astroturfy and superficial, the economy too. Um, and, and at the end of it all, people are going to bed at night freaked out because they're maxing out their credit cards and they cannot afford anything. So I think yeah. that that's probably the return to normalcy that people are looking for. Yeah, that end of democracy nice. stuff, like being able to buy Christmas presents and uh, afford your gas. Yeah. Yeah, pre-COVID, man, those were those were the days. Uh, this that is was former. Right. That was living. We were living it up. We, I don't think people even remember, like, because it's been so hard for now. Like, you know, it's now it's twenty twenty four, so we can say, like, you know, a few years already where it's been, it's been so hard on people, and yeah. I don't think that the geniuses can appreciate that. Well, David you Brooks know, says you know, the economy's fine. Griffin. Can't appreciate how difficult it is, and the illegal immigration, you know, rage ties into that because it's like, whoa! Like in California, they're now giving them health care. Can we pause for one second because our people are suffering? Can we get our priorities yeah. straight for like a minute? 
Yeah, this is a uh, former <clears throat> Trump de deputy press secretary Sarah Matthews, because I'm I'm like I want to know what they're talking about. Like what what are they really concerned about? Uh, he said she said he has literally called for things like doing away with parts of the Constitution. I don't know what she's talking about. Wanting to weaponize the DOJ? Are you kidding me? And to enact revenge on his political enemies? Again, same idea. Like who's caring about those things? First not true. All, yeah. Second of all, in what way has the Biden administration not already done all of those things? Of course. I'm sorry, but I, I love the, the, the norms and decorum crowd <laughs> trying to say that, oh, you mean the DOJ will be weaponized? How weird. Yeah. Uh, while yeah. the main opposition leader is facing like 700 years in prison. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Like, stop. You know what I mean? It's so stupid. It's it's beyond belief. It's like it's insulting because we're they expect us to believe this. Um, I got one last question for you, Emma Joe. Uh, I don't know how much you're on the Jeffrey Epstein beat, but oh god, what <laughs> what does it mean that the former president Bill Clinton will be soon? will soon be named in court documents linked to convicted <laughs> sex criminal Jeffrey Epstein. What, are, like, what, what, is this, what does this mean? I don't know. It feels like a dud, to be honest. I know that I'm supposed to be all like, hopped up about it. <laughs> um, and I'm obviously not a, a Jeffrey Epstein uh, a supporter. You don't need I mean, to. You didn't need, to do, you didn't need <laughs> that disclaimer. for Epstein at all. <laughs> Um, but I just feel like it's kind of like, yeah, we know Bill Clinton. There's a photo of Bill Clinton, like getting a massage from some chick age vague, um, <laughs> <laughs> from this whole Jeffrey Epstein saga. It's like, yes, we know he was all tied up in that. Yes. We know he's kind of pervy and weird. Um, we know, uh, I, I don't really see the bomb show. I guess I'm supposed to like for content purposes say, oh, this is so fascinating. Um, but it doesn't really, like, I'm more interested, like, whatever, Jeffrey Epstein died, like, four years ago, it's like, and yes, obviously, if there's any sort of malfeasance, or God forbid, pedophilia, um, we should definitely, you know, prosecute that, of course, but like I said, I'm interested in, in issues that are happening right now, today, and in, in events that are happening right now, today, where I know that my readers, and me, and you, and my future family, are gonna feel that yep. and i don't really see how bill clinton being more involved with epstein than we previously knew but still not substantially involved that leads to any sort of consequence in any way um no, matters not, and is worth any of my brain cells i'm not too opposed to any of that my, my wife the other day she <clears throat> was talking to her mom and her mom mentioned some bit of drama about something and steph was like mom i i just that's not i can't <laughs> that's just yeah. I'm not on my radar. I got way too much going on. We got four kids. Yeah. Like we got I I don't have time for that one. Sorry, and just like like put the, put a line oh, down. Wow. I was like I was like super proud of her. I was like wow, nice way to like not yeah. just take it all in all the time. Um, <laughs> it's like it's not your responsibility to care about all the things all the time, wife. Uh, so well, that's her, it, exactly. You. It's like you only have so much capacity to be like spun up. Yes. <laughs> Let's pick. Let's pick the things that matter. Well, we played a clip from Tucker earlier, uh, where he said he only cares about uh, the opinions of people who he loves and who love him. And I put. He says I put all my eggs of caring about what people think in that basket. 
and I don't care at all about what other people think in any way. Says I'm the most hated man in the, in the world and I don't care at all. It doesn't cause me any stress. But if my wife said something bad, negative about me or critical, I would, it would bring me to my knees. Uh, and I just like that attitude of, like, you still care, but oh, it's like... that's so true. That's so true. Especially, like, if you have any sort of... And I hate to be like this. Like, I'm already, I'm already gagging at what I'm about to say at myself. But if you have any sort of public exposure, you know, and you're getting, like, ripped on by people in the public or even by, like, the reply guys or whatever, <laughs> it's like... You read that stuff sometimes, and it could be pretty brutal. Um, but the only way to, like, live, and, and this goes obviously more generally, like, the only way to live is to actually, like, understand, like, where is this criticism coming from? Do they, are they people who actually care about you, or are they people who are bored? <laughs> mm, yeah, no, almost, yeah, or, or worse. Um, so I lied. This is my last question. Uh, can you help us define happy warrior? Because <clears throat> that's obviously what Breitbart was. And uh, you are, and we need to be. Uh, what does that look like to you? Um, wow, cool question. Um, the I would say that that the answer to that is how you how you respond, uh, how you express yourself, and how you respond to being disagreed with. I see so many people who express themselves with with anger and resentment. And I understand that sentiment, obviously. Um, and when they're talking to somebody who they disagree with, they get hot about it and they, and they maybe get condescending or, or demeaning, especially if they have a better grasp on the facts than the person who they're talking to. Um, but the way I think to, to live, first of all, for your own sanity, and second of all, for the sake of if you ever felt like getting somebody over to your side, is to live and express yourself with joy and love. And really, like, you know, Breitbart, it's so ironic to me because Breitbart will be called by its detractors, you know, oh, uh, negative and, and, you know, resentful and, you know, stirring up anger. And that is so the opposite of what Breitbart is and what the people who work there are and what the readers are. They're happy people who are having fun <laughs> and trying to find um, opportunities to have fun and joke around and be light about serious and heavy problems mm. at every opportunity. Um, and, and that was what Andrew was. Andrew was totally hilarious. And he, he had this, you know, as, as you know, it's maybe cliche, this righteous indignation. But at the same time, he was absolutely hilarious, brilliant, and magnetic. And I think that that is the embodiment of a happy warrior. And Andrew is is being being tough and not really giving an inch, maybe even taking it further to your side in the way you talk, but ultimately being being fun and magnetic and joyful to express yourself with joy and live with joy, and and there's tons of opportunity for that. And and let's be honest, mocking is the most devastating <laughs> way of, of expressing critique. And yeah. I think that that's also the most convincing way of expressing critique. Um, and, and that is to me what a happy warrior is, living with joy and, and being true to your values and, and sticking to your values, but doing it in a way that makes people want to join you in them. That's a perfect answer. I love all those words. I wrote them all down. Um, so I, I can't announce what I'm going to say right now, but let's just say we're building a set and there's talk about this wall right here to my right, 
putting that famous picture of Breitbart screaming. It's the front of Righteous Indignation, right? That picture? Yes. And like the, I think maybe even on the Breitbart store, they even have this and it says hashtag war underneath. And that's not like, listen, who am I to say, right? But like, that's not totally, I'm not totally down with the war part or anything. I get it, right? Right. But I think that image with hashtag fun or, or like yeah. joy, like the, like the dichotomy between that is maybe more powerful than feeding into maybe the perception uh, of, of the Breitbart brand. I think joy, love, fun, magnetic, charisma, like all those words underneath that face, <laughs> I think is like perhaps even more powerful than just war. Although that's yes, what we're yes, also doing I, too. I totally agree. And, and I think that there's a huge difference when you see the delivery of somebody who's coming at you, like trying to own you versus somebody who's coming at you trying to like, with just like good energy mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference when you're trying to approach somebody who doesn't agree with you. Huge difference. Everything. Yeah. yeah. And what's your, what is our goal to win the argument or change a mind? Uh, yeah. It's the, the latter. So, so true. Uh, Emma Joe Morris, the wonderful uh, Breitbart politics editor, Emma Joe NYC on the Twitter. Happy New Year, Emma Joe. Thank you so much. Happy New Year, and see you in more episodes to come in the year. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be a year. I cannot wait for it. I'm thrilled. I'm excited. And, uh, <laughs> I'm loving your energy on already. Thanks, Emma Joe. Appreciate it. I'm American made. Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. We had a great phone call at the end of the show asking when illegal immigrants became so entitled. And, I, and my short answer was, I, I think probably when we became so entitled. And then we started to attract certain types of immigrants different than in the past. That's probably right. And we never, we, we, we don't give people like something good to assimilate to anymore because of who we have become. So we have to talk about that. We tabled this conversation before Christmas, a table a conversation on work ethic. And it's time we get back to it. And hopefully a lot of things will make sense because of it. We'll start doing that tomorrow. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. Have a great day.